Regardless of what deal Congress figures out, if it does figure out one, federal spending is going to rise sharply next year. That will mean more acquisition contracts than ever. Some federal contractors might have technical debt, though, in their ability to manage large volumes of contracts. For some free advice, we turn to Dell Tech's chief product officer, Warren Linscott. Mr. Linscott, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be here. And you have written about this idea of, you know, we hear technical debt on the part of the federal government all the time. But contractors kind of mirror that in some way. What is their management challenge? in the current age of acquisition we're in? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different challenges that government contractors are facing, both small and large, and I categorize them in a couple different areas. So there's the macroeconomic challenges I think we're all familiar with in terms of increased cost of labor, general inflation, supply chain challenges, material challenges. So all those things are impacting the federal contracting community. Then there's some specific challenges around ever-increasing cybersecurity challenges for these contractors. CMMC is due to come out later this year if the DOD can get it out. There's other challenges for regulatory environment like environmental sustainability and government's regulatory challenges. So all these things impact you know, the contractor's ability to think about improving their technology debt situation and improving their processes overall as a business so they can efficiently not only manage all the cost pressure from those challenges, but then compete in a marketplace that's getting even more competitive as there's less prime contract opportunities for folks. Because some of the pressures you mentioned, the environmental and this and that, have been laid on in recent years by the Biden administration, there's this huge compliance burden. It was always there, I mean, for federal contractors. Now it's even expanded, and that can get them into false claim situations or whatever. How do you then translate what you need to do on compliance with what you need to do to manage your company? Because compliance has always been kind of a siloed function in some ways. Yeah, I think it's less siloed now than it ever has been as it starts to permeate through every part of what we would call the project life cycle for a federal contractor. You know, there's compliancy that they have to think about for their personnel, for how they run their business, for their cybersecurity, which touches everything as they're handling sensitive data throughout the bid process all the way to project execution and close. And so they really have to have a comprehensive view of that. And this all starts with a view of people, process, and tools, you know, around that project lifecycle. And how do they build in compliancy with these new regulations or have systems that are flexible or agile that can address them as they come up? Because if there's one thing that's for certain is there'll be more regulations and more regimes that they have to comply with. Yes, because there's a couple of ways to look at how you manage from a contractor's standpoint. One is as a company, and there's ERP systems and management software that companies have to run themselves by. But in many ways, you really have to manage by project. If you're a federal contractor, costs go with a particular project when you bill the government, and they look carefully at that stuff sometimes. What's the best way to cut the way you look at your company as a whole with accounting, compliance, et cetera, all mixed in? Or is there some way to kind of project that over project by project, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. We look at the world through the lens of a project life cycle, right? And I think that each one of those areas from finding and winning new business to managing the contracts once they come in to developing the talent within your business, most of these businesses are people-based businesses, driving that financial performance both at the project level and the corporate level there are KPIs associated with each one of those. And there's kind of a best practice in terms of generating those KPIs. And there's a best practice in terms of where you should fall. So for example, if your day sales outstanding is greater than 45 days, 
right? You're above the mean for the industry at, at large, and you've got a problem with how you generate invoices that could come back to how you collect time. And so, you know, having a good way to look at these KPIs across the project lifecycle and to manage them effectively, have owners that are responsible for delivering them, and then to look at what they mean relative to your performance can give you insight into where you might be inefficient from a process perspective and help you drill in. So the first step really is understanding, you know, can we generate these KPIs? And from there, you can start to look at, you know, where am I inefficient as a business? And by doing this, right, you know, most of the reporting and regulatory requirements are based on the granularity at which you maintain data within these systems. So if you can generate these KPIs and you can understand how to get more efficient, that's one step in the direction of compliancy. We're speaking with Warren Linscott. He is the chief product officer at Deltec. And with these KPIs and all of these metrics, is it then easier for a contractor to know which projects are profitable and which are not? Because not everyone makes money on every federal contracting deal. Absolutely. Like if you look at just the managed section of the project lifecycle, which is all about, you know, managing your projects, you have to understand profitability, schedule risk, how you're delivering on time and on budget. You have to predict things like estimates at complete, estimates to complete, and your resource utilization. And so without a system that can track things at that project level in a more granular and fine way, you don't know, you know, where your profitability is, you know, which one of your project managers is the most profitable or which agency that you're working for is delivering the best projects for you to get that profitability. And so managing those KPIs and really driving that into the fabric of your business can help help inform your go-to-market so that you're going after contracts that are best fit to get the best profit for your organization. And how do you tie in accounting to all of this? Because there are those types of contracts where you might be audited or you will be audited, even if it takes them 10 years to get around to the audit, but that doesn't absolve you from making sure that your cost accounting fits the standards that the government demands if it's a contract that is liable for cost accounting. And can you get the accounting metrics and KPIs into your system in such a way that you can later on have a better confidence in showing that you did what you're supposed to from an accounting standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. There are solutions, right? I happen to know one or two myself that are designed with project accounting in mind. Um, And that project accounting ledger really feeds into the general ledger and, and general corporate accounting. And so when we do it in that way, we're maintaining all the labor costs onto the project at the right level, all the materials cost, all the expenses. We're looking at both direct project costs, so someone's billing directly to the project versus indirect costs that are allowable to go back on the bill to the federal government. And so by maintaining that granularity at the project accounting level and having trust in the systems and the process and the validations that would occur, then you can more easily comply with the regulatory regimes when they come around to audit those projects to ensure that all those direct and indirect costs are correct, that the rate structures are what were agreed to if it's a cost plus contract. So having that granularity at the project accounting level is absolutely critical to being able to more easily pass an audit. But I think the other more important thing maybe at times for government contractors is getting paid. So if you don't have accuracy in terms of your bills, if your customers don't trust what's coming out in your bills and you can't stand behind that in the audit, then that day sales outstanding can grow and you don't get paid. And cash flow is really critical for these businesses, especially the smaller ones that have to weather these other costs and challenges we talked about with really limited resources. And contractors have varying levels of maturity at all of this. I mean, if you're one of the large aerospace contractors, and even they run into trouble from time to time with cost accounting, and they even get False Claims Act winnings against them from time to time. But they have a great level of maturity going back decades. 
But the government is trying to get all of these new contractors having trouble getting small businesses. In fact, the small business roster is shrinking by most measures. And one of the reasons might be compliance and cost accounting you know, on the back end, let alone getting the contract on the front end in the first place. So what's your best advice for a so-called innovative contractor that would like to take their expertise to the federal government? And how do you forewarn them that the government talks a good game, but when you actually do business with it, you're kind of entangled? Uh, Absolutely. I think the first bit of advice I would give is never go it alone. I think that, you know, you need to be humble in what you don't know. And and there's a a large community of CPAs out there, of companies, you know, like Deltec and others that have a community of folks that have been through this transition. And we see this all the time with small businesses that are coming off generic, off-the-shelf accounting packages that were, you know, built for general accounting. And they have to make a transformation to federal contract accounting. And it is a big shift and they need help. And so what we find is that, you know, the ones that use either, you know, some or partial managed accounting services are the ones that really make that transition successful. Even if that's for uh, just a quarter, you know, and helping, you know, through a quarter close, they benefit from seeing how somebody that has the experience would do it. And so, yeah, definitely don't do it alone. You know, there's a lot of community support for getting new contractors in the door. There's a lot of folks of all kinds of different, you know, diversity in terms of ownership. So there's a group just about for everyone that's trying to start a new business or get into the federal contracting world. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, these projects never happen alone, right? As you mentioned, you have large prime contractors, they have vast subcontracting networks. They're always looking for new teaming partners. So they're, you know, willing, those networks are willing to help out new folks with new capabilities to learn the ropes and to make that transition. And once you figure it out, and having good government contracts is not a bad annuity, is it? Not at all, right? I mean, as we talked about, the this federal spending environment is, is quite positive, continues to grow, and so it's a great place to be. And when we have downturns in the economy, if you look back to 2008, 2009, and then you look at that compared to what happened in the pandemic, you know, the federal contracting community suffered maybe um, low single-digit declines versus double-digit declines in other industries in the commercial sector. So it is a great place to be because of the stability, but also because of the fairness in contracting. You know, you're not going to see the federal government award somebody a contract and then halfway through it, switch that award to another vendor because of a price difference or whatever. So come on in. The water is great. Warren Linscott is Chief Product Officer at Deltec. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. 
as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. 
but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, 
not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.